You know, with Christmas coming and gone, and now the new year upon us, I know for us as we get older, um, and we still delight in seeing our kids enjoy Christmas and opening their gifts and all, but it's easy for us to kind of go to sleep a little bit. And this passage here is about that tendency on the part of saved people to get lackadaisical in their faith. And it's not all that hard to understand, particularly in where we live, where a lot of unbelieving people are pretty good. And a lot of Christian people are not so good. And sometimes we wonder, have we even just bought in maybe to a fairy tale? And, and is it just no more than a, than a Santa Claus story? We know that our faith is rooted in history. Actual historical events that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, actually lived on this earth. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was actually crucified on a Roman cross, and literally, in history, rose from the dead. Our faith is not grounded just on the teachings of men, but on actual historical events that have taken place. Not philosophies and not people's ideas and people's uh, views of what's right or what's wrong or the best way to live, but on a person and actual historical events concerning him and his life here. I think that it's helpful when we read a passage like we just read here in Romans 13, coming to the end of this section where he's been talking about um, loving our enemies and relating properly to the body of Christ, thinking correctly concerning ourselves, um, submitting to the government that God has put over us as unto the Lord, and, and loving even our, our, our neighbors, our unbelieving neighbors, because this is the fulfillment of the law. And now to live in the anticipation of Christ's coming. All of these are manifestations of the yielded life. But again, it's helpful to understand, to put in perspective what life looks like apart from the Lord. And, and to put that in the contrast to the Lord himself in the significance that God entered this world. And I read through the Bible and, and, um, and occasionally I come across a statement and I go, that's really sad. And one of those is in 1 Kings chapter 18 where there's that conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the 450 prophets of Baal are trying to call fire down from heaven. And we know that they fail miserably. And Elijah, he builds the, rebuilds the altar of the Lord. And he barely even finishes his prayer. And fire comes, comes shooting down out of heaven. and consumes the altar and the rocks and everything. But the sad part, really, is when these prophets of Baal have been crying out to Baal since 9 o'clock in the morning, since the time of the, of the morning sacrifice, perhaps earlier. And it says in verse 28, that, that after all these hours of crying out to Baal, it says they, they cried out with a loud voice and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And it came about when the midday was passed that they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice all day long. And here's the sad part. But there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. Slashing themselves, leaping about this altar, crying out to their God, there was no voice. 
No one answered, and no one paid attention. That is life apart from Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how sincere we are. It doesn't matter how religious, how committed, how devoted, how extreme. It is a sad, pathetic life apart from Jesus Christ. Because no one is answering, no one is hearing, and no one is paying attention. It's a life apart from God. It is sad. And we think, well, there's nobody living like that today, slashing themselves and dancing about altars, and maybe not right in our neighborhood. But it's happening all over the world. And even in our own neighborhoods where people are, are crying out for something, anything, desperately wanting to have intervention in their life that goes beyond them. And there's only silence. I heard of one time of a, of a Christian man was, was sharing Christ with a Muslim, devout Muslim, and, and asking him about his faith and his religious practice. And as we know, Muslims pray five times a day. They are very devout. And this Christian man just simply asked him, have you ever had an answer to prayer? And the Muslim man, in honesty, said, no. I've never had a single prayer answered. I pray five times a day, every day of my life, spend a whole month in prayer and fasting during the month of Ramadan, and I have never had a prayer answered. No one's listening. No one's paying attention. And I'm not saying that God doesn't know when the unbeliever prays. Obviously, he does. But they are not in a personal relationship with him. And it's a life of futility and isolation. And it's a sad life. We look back at the most advanced civilizations that the world has known. The Egyptians, the Aztecs, the Incas. All three of those civilizations routinely worshipped their God through infant sacrifice. The best in all their advance, in all their, their, their superior technology, whatever it was, we're still trying to figure out how they built the things that they built. They were slaughtering innocent children by the tens of thousands. Altars that were so large that they had to, ch- had to cut channels for the blood to run off of so that they wouldn't be standing ankle deep in blood advanced civilizations. Well, what about the Greeks and the Romans? And They weren't doing that with their children. Oh, yes, they were. They may not have been actually burning them in sacrifices to their gods, but if they had a child that was born weak or deformed, they did not hesitate to throw that child out on the street for the garbage collectors to pick up in the morning. And that's where Christian orphanages came in. Because Christians say, we're not going to let these babies die. And it was called just putting them out. They would just say, we're going to put them out. We're going to expose them. And it was a routine practice by both the Greeks, the Romans, the Spartans, all of them, was to destroy the weak among them because they so valued strength. And they say, these people will never be raised up to be warriors as long as they're born weak. And they did not hesitate to take their own children and throw them off cliffs or just throw them out on the street 
for the garbage collectors to pick up in the morning. The most advanced civilizations this world has ever known. Moses, in his desperation to know God, in Exodus 33, he says, God, show me your glory. And it's curious how God responds to that. He says, Exodus 33, then Moses said, I will pray thee, show me thy glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. God's glory is his goodness. He is a good God. You would never know that by looking at the ancient civilizations that this world has produced. You would not know that by looking at our own society here. That God is truly a good God. And then in Exodus 34, when God is passing by, he's hidden Moses in the cleft of the rock there. And and Moses can only see the backside of God as he comes by. And God is proclaiming testimony to himself. That's pretty strong stuff when God tells you, this is what I'm like. And so it's not up to our imaginations. God is revealing himself. And it says, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. And the first thing he says is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. This is our God. He is a God of compassion, of grace, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Our God. God is saying this about himself. There is no reason for these prophets of Baal to be leaping about altars, slashing themselves, trying to get the attention of their God. When the true God, you don't have to work up some kind of fervor and intensity in order to try and get his attention. He already has given it. He couldn't be more preoccupied with us because he loves us. He is a God of grace and compassion, loving kindness and truth, who forgives our iniquity. This is our God. When you come to John chapter 1, if you can turn there in your Bibles, we see almost the identical statement just condensed down from Exodus 34, God's self-declaration, His self-testimony, to John chapter 1, where Jesus comes on the scene And we know at the beginning of John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then coming down to verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. And here's the second of of, of two of the saddest verses I know in Scripture. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. I think that's just as sad as the prophets of Baal, where there was no voice, and no one heard, and no one paid attention. Jesus, the Son of God, comes into this world. He comes to his own, and his own did not receive him. But then we continue to read on about him and what they are rejecting when they don't receive him. Verse 14, And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Remember Moses? Show me your glory. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember Exodus 34? The Lord God, he is compassionate and gracious and full of loving kindness who forgives iniquity. And here we're told concerning Jesus, full of grace and truth. I think it's John's summary on everything that's being said about God by God in Exodus 34. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was of him whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of grace and truth. When we look at him and look at society, the contrast couldn't be any more stark. And there is no explanation for why men's lives change as they do other than the one who is good and gracious and true comes into a vital relationship with them. Just in our lifetimes, for those of us that are a little bit older, the gospel has come to Papua New Guinea and Iranjara. Recently, they've changed their names a little bit. But I remember reading biographies about the story of the gospel coming into those nations just since World War II. Stone Age people who are out there slaughtering each other, killing their children, throwing twins into the river because there's something wrong when twins are born, eating their enemies, just, just constant warfare and brutality. And nobody has ever been able to do anything for those people. And that's just one story of hundreds of stories through the, through the history of mankind until missionaries come in and share the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they put their faith in Christ, the very wellspring of their life, as Oswald Chambers calls it, is altered. The main spring changes. And it's not that they are no longer capable of sin. But now there is a desire in them for good. They don't want to be at war all the time. They don't want to be destroying their neighbors and throwing their children in the river. Light has come. And they've become lovers of the light and haters of the darkness. And going back to John, John uses that very motif of light and darkness and loving and hating it. And he says in John chapter, in John chapter 3 here, In verse 19, he says, And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Men love the darkness rather than the light. But those who love the truth come to the light. Now all of this comes back to Romans 11. You can just see how Paul must have had so many of these scriptures in his mind. When in, not Romans 11, Romans 13, when Paul says in verse 11, listen, the, the Christ who came to us, 
who gave Himself for us, who has radically altered our lives. He has saved us. He has forgiven us. He has given us His life. And now I've implored you to simply present yourselves to Him as living sacrifices. This same Christ, you are to live in anticipation of His soon return. Look at verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. And this do... Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from the sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. He's speaking to Christian people who are already saved. So the salvation that he's speaking of is the return of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, now that you have come to this one who you recognize as grace and truth realized. You've come to the one in whom alone you have forgiveness of sin. You've recognized that society and the best that it offers is vile, it is despicable, it is filled with hatred, there is no compassion in it. It is totally self-consumed. And you've recognized that there is a Savior, and that Savior is only in Jesus Christ. You people who have come to Jesus for salvation... Live in the anticipation that he could return at any moment. Another aspect of the yielded life is now being presented to us. The yielded life thinks rightly about itself. It does not consider itself too highly. The yielded life thinks rightly about the body of Christ. I am a member of that body, and I need every single person in that body, and they all have something to contribute The yielded life lives in right relationship with the other members of the body of Christ. It loves without hypocrisy, is devoted to one another in brotherly love. It gives preference to one another in honor. The yielded life will not pay back evil for evil, but it seeks for the good even of its enemies. It's not overcome by evil, but it overcomes evil with good. The yielded life lives in subjection to the governing authorities. And the yielded life waits in anticipation eagerly for the return of Jesus Christ. Listen to some of these other verses the scripture says about the same theme. In fact, when it comes to the return of Christ, it's been said that it's the most dominant theme in the New Testament. That there's more about the return of Christ than there is about love and faith, it's been said. That that there are over 300 times that it is mentioned in the New Testament alone. One out of every 25 verses. Whole chapters are devoted to the return of Christ. There is more attention to this doctrine than any other. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. James 5, 7 and 9 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Hebrews chapter 10, For we have need, you have need of endurance, so then when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised for yet in a very little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. 1 Peter 1, 13-17, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but 
Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 1 John 3, 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 11, We also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are also made manifest to your consciences. All of these passages and many more come back to holiness, truth, righteousness, and anticipation of Christ's soon return. The new year, we've always, we all know, we have no clue what's going to happen today, much less in this new year. We read the newspapers and we can be pretty disturbed about the anticipation of bad things that could be coming. And they may. They may very well. But the Lord exhorts us to not be complacent about the return of Jesus. And the yielded life is a life that lives in eager anticipation of Christ's soon return. It's not just a doctrine for those that went to Dallas Seminary and focused on pre-tribulational rapture. It is the readiness of a believer yielded to Jesus. And again, it's the readiness of Christ himself. The event is going to come. We don't know the day and time. But the event of the Lord's return will come. It's just as sure as it came the first time. He will come again. There is no question about it. But what he would have us to live in anticipation of is not simply the event, but again of Christ personally. He saved us. He is coming again. That should have practical implications on how I live each day of my life. Verse 12, back in Romans 13, verse 12. The night is almost gone. That's how God describes this time that we're living in, night. It's not a good time. As good as it may be at times, it is night and the day is coming. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore... Those people who are the light of the world, who have put their faith in the one who came into this world as the light of the world. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is a deed of darkness? Anything that I would be embarrassed to be caught doing when Jesus returns again. Anything that I'd be embarrassed... To be caught doing if somebody were to walk into my office and look at what I was looking at on the computer. Or to see what I'm watching on television. Put aside the deeds of darkness. Jesus could return at any time, but even if he doesn't, even if he should delay a thousand years, put aside 
the deeds of darkness. For we are not of the darkness. And one of the best ways that I know that I'm moving away from the Lord is when I am doing something that I don't want anybody else to know about. When God describes, gives the reasons for why he had Israel dispersed off the land by the Assyrians, 2, Corinthians, 2 Kings chapter 17, one of the things that he mentions at the top of that list is that they did things secretly. Now, I think he's, he's probably talking about the occultic arts, the things that are done in dark places, the, the enchantments and the spells and, and, the, and all the different things that they do under the cloak of darkness. But again, God is a God of light, and Satan is the God of darkness. And when I am moving into an area where I don't want anybody to know what I'm doing, then I am moving away from the Lord. I ought to be able to live in such openness before God that anybody else could look over my shoulder and, and I shouldn't be embarrassed. To walk in the light as He is in the light. A yielded life is a life of light, not of darkness. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousings and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Again, those are characteristics of the pagan life, of a life without God. And we have been given Jesus. Not just so we can open up our presents on Christmas morning, but that every day, that our life would be true of Him. Remember again how God describes Himself. And that self-revelation, that self-testimony in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The very reason that people change is because this God has come to live in them, and they live yielded to Him. The only hope for my life at the end of 2011, being anything different than it is at the beginning, is Jesus Christ, and living yielded to Him. Walking in the light with Him, and recognizing there are things that are not true of Him, and I cannot walk with Him who is good and walk in the darkness at the same time. There is no fellowship between light and darkness. And if I'm going to know the one who is good, and become a good person, it is only by being in relationship with the one who is good, and living a yielded life before him. It's the only way. He transforms individuals. And as individuals are transformed, he transforms society. It's never been any other way. Carousings, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, jealousy has nothing to do with Jesus. can characterize our lives, obviously, or he wouldn't be telling us to put them aside. But again, this is not what I've been saved for. This is what I've been saved from by the glory of God. When Peter is preaching in Acts, he says, God sent his own son 
to deliver us from our own wicked ways. And because Christ has come into this world, I will never have any excuse for living in sin. Because Jesus is the Savior from sin. And he came to set me free from my own wicked ways. My sin is never anybody else's problem. It's my deliberate choice to walk in darkness rather than light. To live an unyielded life. Verse 14, put no, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Obviously, this is a metaphor. He's not speaking literally. I can't just grab Jesus and somehow put him on me. But it's, it's a great metaphor because just like we'd get up in the morning and, and get dressed. I can wake up in the morning and say, Lord Jesus, it's your life. And I want to live under you. I want to live in you. I want to live with you clothing me. That the one thing and the first thing that people notice when they see me is you. Just as you'd notice, man, that guy's uptight. He's wearing a suit and a tie. You know, what an uptight guy. The first thing he notices is the suit that he's wearing. The first thing that you would notice is that I'm clothed with Jesus. Not just clothed with self-righteousness, but clothed with Christ. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a connection here, I think. I, it seems to me, and others have observed, that when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not make provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. And so again, I don't have to go through life saying, okay, I, I don't want to go there because I, I'm, I'm going to give opportunity for the flesh. If I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, I will not be making provision for the flesh. And I, I believe this is how Jesus was able to live in a, an unsullied life when with People who ought to sully, <laughs> prostitutes and tax gatherers. And, and he could frequent the, with the people that he did is because he was, he was clothing himself with his father, living in dependence upon him, acknowledging him, living from him in everything that he did. And so there was no provision being made for the flesh because he was, he was as it were, dying to the flesh every time he, he lived Independence upon the Father, and He did every moment. And the same is true for us. And, and God just begins to, He can shield our eyes and, and our thoughts as we consciously put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But having said that, we shouldn't be stupid either and knowingly put ourselves in situations where we know that God is not giving grace for it. When I was growing up down in Corpus, high school kid, you know, everybody goes to the beach, and I spent lots of hours on the beach, and I knew that there were parts of the beach, mainly where the people were, I can't go to because I can't handle it. And so I'd go find a part of the beach where there was nobody at to do my sun tanning or whatever. And, but I couldn't handle being out, never went, grew up in Corpus, and never went to the island on spring break because I knew I couldn't handle it. And so I could not put on the Lord Jesus Christ and simultaneously, in my life, go out to the beach for spring break. And I, 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 could, I would be making provision for the flesh if I were to do that. And I couldn't. And again, that's me. But, it, but, it, but in living in that conscious dependence upon the Lord and, pu- and putting Him on, He will direct in our hearts. And, and we will know when we are making opportunity for, this, for the flesh and when we are not. 
But a life lived in Christ is not a life that's open to the lust of the flesh. Again, very basic truths, aren't they? The yielded life is a life that lives in anticipation of Jesus Christ personally and of his return. The yielded life is a life of light and not of darkness. And Jesus, who is God, is good. And when he has access to me, when I yield to him, I will live as a good man. Not a nice man, a good man. Morally upright, no darkness, nothing to hide, not because I'm something great, but because of Jesus Christ and who I'm living in relationship with. He alone is good. And he has saved me that I might be delivered from my own wicked ways. Didn't say he saved me so that he could deliver me from everybody else's wicked ways. He saved me to deliver me from my wicked ways as I live in relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's our hope, isn't it? Not for a better year. Our hope is that God would be be more free to express himself in the good and glorious and gracious God that he is in our lives this year. That more of Christ would be seen. And, and, and it's absolutely potential as we simply put on the Lord Jesus Christ with every day. Wake up in the morning, Lord Jesus, it's yours. Envy, strife, jealousy, sensuality, all of it. Lord Jesus, thank you that I don't have to be characterized by these things, even though maybe everybody in my environment is. That by the grace of God, that you can be the light of the world in my circumstances. Had a, um, I'll just close with this thought. Had a had a waitress um, come to my table this week, this past well, a couple weeks, not a week ago now. My kids were with me. We were out to eat, and I've been in this restaurant a few times and never really had a significant conversation with the with the waitress. But she's seen me in there with other people and and overheard our conversations, talking about the Lord and reading Christian books and things and. And so she came up and she just said, um, do you take prayer requests? <laughs> I never had anybody ask me, do you take prayer requests? And um, so I'm thinking, well, yes, I'd be glad to pray for you. How can I pray for you? And so she just, she shared some things. And she said, our, our family is just really under attack. And things are bad. And, and so after I went to pay and, and um, she you know, the, the kids were all out, and so it was just, just me and the waitress standing there at the cash register, and so she was able to share more with me. And I just really appreciated it. But she was just saying, I, I don't want to cave in here. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to be light and life here. Well, as I talked to her, I realized that, that she has a relationship with the Lord, and then, and, but, but it's just a terrible family situation that, that she's living in. But again, and, and it just able to, just to gently to encourage her and to pray for her, as it was, you know, we got so caught up in the conversation, I forgot to tip her. And so, man, you know, yeah, I'll pray for you, but I'm not going to tip you. So I, you know, and so the Lord reminded me of that. And so for several days, I kept going back to the restaurant to find her. But she works part-time, and I couldn't find her. It took about a week before I could get back in there. 
And and when I saw her and I and I and I gave her a tip and and she chased me back out, you know, as I as I was leaving and she says, I know you're praying for me. And I go, How do you know that? She goes, Because it's getting worse. <laughs> and she says, But I know it oftentimes has to get worse before it can get better. And again, God, He did not come to deliver me from all the wicked ways of everybody else. He came to set me free from my wicked ways. And I can live in anticipation of Jesus. This is the day of darkness. We're living in the time of darkness, but the day is coming. And But now, until that time, we, we, we are the most blessed people on earth. We have Christ. Our sins are forgiven. And He is in the process of increasingly making himself known through us. Folks, there's no other hope. There's simply no other hope for this new year or any other time, for this world or for us personally, than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the gift that God has given to this world. Let me close this in prayer.